This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Coming up on Chopper's Politics. Putin is costing the Russian nation tens of thousands of the lives of its bravest and best. I'm Christopher Hope, The Telegraph's Associate Editor for Politics, and this is Chopper's Politics. Hours ago, Russian tanks rolled into Ukraine, and we're here in the Red Lion pub to bring you the very latest analysis of what Vladimir Putin's decision means for the West and what Britain must do now. It's a fast-moving situation, and we're recording our podcast before Boris Johnson has addressed the nation and MPs about the rapidly evolving crisis in Europe. Coming up, we'll be speaking to James Heapy, the Armed Forces Minister, and Bob Seeley, Tory MP for the Isle of Wight and a long-time Russia critic. But first, the UK is painting Vladimir Putin as out of touch with his people by launching this attack on Ukraine. So how has it gone down in Moscow? Natalia Vasilyeva, the Telegraph's Russia correspondent, is in the city right now. Natalia, welcome to Chopper's Politics. Good morning. We're talking to you from the Red Lion pub. You're in Moscow. How has Vladimir Putin's comments gone down amongst Muscovites, amongst ordinary Russians? It was a complete shock, to say the least. Uh, both ordinary people and uh, pundits have been saying for years that a full-scale uh, invasion of Ukraine was completely inconceivable. It's quite telling that Russian state TV doesn't use the words war or Ukraine. They call it a special operation in the Donbass in eastern Ukraine. We're seeing reports, and I have been to one of them, we're seeing reports that banks in Moscow are running out of cash, they're running out of foreign currency. It's a complete shell shock to everyone. If you look at any person's Facebook feed, you see messages filled with disbelief, shame, and um, a, a complete disbelief at what, what happened. And in terms of Russians, is there any sign they might be demonstrating against this on the streets? I mean, as I try to understand what Putin has done overnight. Sure. I was, I was actually talking to some protesters yesterday when we thought that there might be some sort of uh, military operation in the East, obviously not the scale that we're seeing today. Uh, people told me that the main problem here, obviously, is opposition leaders have been jailed, like Alexei Navalny, or driven into exile. Yet I'm, I'm seeing um, messages on social media calling on people to come out of Central Square of their cities and town at seven in the evening. We'll see. We'll see what happens. The UK government and Western allies are trying to present Putin as being slightly deranged about someone out of touch with ordinary Russians. Is that how it's seen where you are? Absolutely. I have yet to meet a person who will approve of a full-scale invasion of Ukraine. This is what's happening. And again, I would like to point out that if you look at state media and major state-controlled websites, they all portray it as a special operation in mm. eastern Ukraine, which is not supposed to affect ordinary Ukrainians in any way. So it's a war that's going to be an incredibly difficult to sell. 
So they're calling it a special operation in state-run media, but can Russians look at Western media and other news sources and see the information there? Absolutely. Luckily, we still have some uh, independent media left, and one of them, Russia's only independent uh, news channel, Dorst, uh, has been streaming live since early hours this morning, uh, describing it obviously as a war against Ukraine. Um, Those media outlets are, are still available. They're out there doing an amazing job. Much is made of the fact that lots of Russians know Ukrainians and there's there's family across the border. You don't view in Russia Ukraine as an enemy. Absolutely, because I think it's very hard to find someone who doesn't have family or, or, or friends connections in uh, Ukraine. Obviously, this is purely hypothetical now, but I would say that a limited military operation in eastern Ukraine, a deployment of troops in the separatist-controlled territories, possibly could have gone pretty much unnoticed by a larger population. The fact that we're seeing airstrikes in Kharkov and Lutsk in, in Ivano-Frankivsk all over Ukraine, that is um, impossible to hide. Everyone has friends of, or family in that country. What do you think the end game is here? It seems from London that Putin is trying to restore somehow the USSR. Um, that's the most difficult question of all, because all of the months that we have been talking about an escalation, all of the best, uh, smartest people in this country and abroad who have been following Putin and the Kremlin for decades have laid out their arguments against a full-scale operation, saying that it's not in Russia's interest, that there's, there is no, there are no long-term benefits to be had from that, um, all of those people, just like ordinary Russians, are completely flabbergasted, including myself. And we're, we're struggling to find any explanation how it can bring any benefit to Russia as a country or to Putin as a politician. Because, again, if, you, if we go back exactly eight years to the annexation of Crimea, it was done famously without a single shot fired. Yeah. It was done in a place where Russian-speaking population welcomed Russian troops. This is a completely different situation. I don't see how it can be popular. Can I ask how, how you are, Natalia? How are you feeling? You, you seem emotional this morning. Um, I I don't I don't have any words to describe how I'm feeling. I'm completely devastated and and heartbroken. And I want to go back to sleep and wake up and um, wake up to to see that it was just a nightmare. I it is it is completely inconceivable. Well, Natalia Vasileva, thank you for joining us uh, today from Moscow, and and we'll stay in touch, but thanks and, and, and all the best. Thank you. Thank you. Well, that was the view from Moscow, and after I left the pub, I managed to raise somebody in Ukraine to find out how it is there. I called up Askol Krushalnitsky, a journalist with The Times. Askol, how are you? I'm I'm well, thank you. And where are we coming to you, please, in Ukraine? I'm in the town of Severodonetsk, which is a town in Luhansk province of Ukraine, in eastern Ukraine. It's one of the two provinces of Ukraine where rebel-held areas were unilaterally declared by President Putin a couple of days ago as independent republics. And that's really what triggered the um, fighting that's happening all over Ukraine today. I'm actually in... um, I'm sorry... I think that there there have been some shells um, um, just way off in the distance. And how are people in Ukraine? Are they are they nervous? Uh, I mean, it must be you know the threat of the Russians being twelve to fifteen miles away is is alarming. I'd have thought. 
Well, and their shells are uh, here, so their visiting cards have already landed. I've been traveling around Ukraine for 10 days, and people have been apprehensive, but they said that they must not panic. They've got to uh, be um, disciplined. And indeed, today, people were shaken. You can see on their faces apprehension, anxiety. But um, there wasn't um, some sort of free-for-all to head out of of town. People were measured and, and, and orderly and quiet. People went off to get food supplies from supermarkets, but they weren't carting out whole big trolleys full of food. Um, it looked like people were taking food, basics like bread, uh, water, milk, for a few days. Is there a degree of shock about what's happened? It certainly feels shocking to us here in Westminster. And we spoke earlier to the Telegraph reporter in Moscow, and there's a feeling of palpable shock about how far Putin has gone. Is that felt by you in Ukraine? And I think that because there's been a war happening here since 2014, mm. and actually this area, this town that I'm speaking to you from, and a neighbouring town, which is really a twin town, Lysychansk, were occupied by pro-Russian forces for several months in 2014 until the Ukrainian army drove them out. And there's been lots of people from these places have taken part over the years in frontline fighting. So they're not numbed or inured to it, uh, but it's not something that comes as a complete surprise. They know that Russia wants to um, destroy the very notion of, of Ukraine, I suppose. Um, so yeah. shocked, but not completely surprised that this has happened. Why do you think where you are is being shelled, given that Putin tells us that you're in one of the areas that want the Russian support, that has uh, been recognised as an independent state by Moscow? Why, why is he shelling where you are at the moment? I, I think because... Um, He's living in a world of his own. In 2014, um, he came here, he was sent his troops on the pretext that this is a Russian-speaking area and somehow therefore sympathetic to Russia, almost like Russians. I was here during that time and I, I was at the front lines and I saw the defense then. And 95% of the people, and they were volunteers who fought back, were Russian speakers from um, here. So that should have belied, you know, the propaganda right there. And, and the language has never been the only indicator of somebody's allegiance. In, in Britain, we've got Scotland, Wales, Ireland, and um, England. Mm. Everybody speaks English, but you call a, a Scottish person yeah. an English person, and they're going to get angry. Do you get the feeling, the sense that Ukrainians want to stay and fight if it came to it? That's what we're told and we keep hearing from the leadership in Kiev. Well, yesterday, when the fighting uh, was already intensifying at the front lines, I had a chance to speak to many people of different walks of life, different ages. And I was impressed by how many of them were adamant that they were not going to run away, that this is their place, their country, and they're going to fight. Well, listen, um, Askal Kuzhniski, you take care in, in Ukraine, and um, we may come back to you in the following weeks, but best of luck. Thank you. Thank you. 
Now it's a busy morning in Whitehall and James Heapy is the Armed Forces Minister. He's come here straight from the MOD where he's been talking with officials about the evolving crisis in Ukraine. James Heapy, welcome to Choppers Politics. Morning. It's a difficult morning and we appreciate the time you're spending with us because you come straight from the MOD where you've been meetings, I'm sure, about the situation in Ukraine. Will the UK commit troops to Ukraine? No. Why not? Because people have to be really clear about what's happening in Ukraine today. It is a full-scale invasion of another country by a peer adversary. And I think that the risk of miscalculation and unintended escalation is grave in a way that I don't think many people really understand. I think that too many people over the last few weeks have been talking about all of this as if it's not really going to happen or if it did happen as if this is just a kind of day-to-day political problem that gets dealt with by quick policy a couple of meetings in the cabinet office or resolved. This is a change to the security landscape in Europe that will define the next 30 years and right now avoiding it escalating into something utterly catastrophic and continental has to be as much a consideration as showing solidarity with the Ukrainians. So how are we showing that solidarity in actual things happening? Are we sending arms to Ukraine, to the army? Are we uh, with support? What else are we doing to help? So we, we have. We've sent a lot to them already. We've had an amazingly successful training mission there for 10 years or so. And I think it's probably easy to forget that or to, to downplay its significance. You know, Ukraine regards the UK as one of its best friends in the world, a partner of choice. And that's not because we've said the, la- the right things in the last two months. That's because we've been doing the right things for the last decade. But since Crimea, we haven't, have we? Well, we've been doing Operation Orbital since Crimea. Now, look, you know, when you're faced with a invasion force of nearly 200,000 troops and all the sophistry of the Russian military machine i don't know how much the the reason why we won't commit uk troops there is because well because what it's it's not it's not our fight it's not not a nato fight yeah exactly what is it it's because it's not in nato this isn't an article five moment and that's that's hard right i mean i think that you know, Ukraine is an amazing country where in, you know, I think you might be a tiny bit older than me, but in our, <laughs> in our short lifetimes, it's gone from being oppressed within the Soviet Union to trying to make democracy work. And 44 million people who have had a taste of freedom and don't want that taken away and want to remain as a sovereign, independent country, it really hurts to see that be threatened in the way that it has been. But I think if we blur the lines of the alliance... The NATO alliance. The NATO alliance. If we start to put combat air above Ukraine to try and enforce a no-fly no zone, people have to understand that Putin has made up his mind to do this. He's gone for it. You know, look at his speech this morning, the things he has written. He, is, you know, he will not be deterred by a bunch of NATO jets above Ukraine. In fact... They will, it will just end up that there will be a dogfight that will lead to a shot, uh, jets being downed. And then we're into an Article 5 moment. And, you know, I think we just have to have our eyes wide open. You know, we are sat in a pub on Whitehall and people in the UK are going about their daily lives. You know, everybody is, you look out the window, everything is normal. People have to be sort of 
very alive to the idea that the policy decisions that are made in Western capitals over the next couple of days are not about quick fixes, you know, quick get the headlines right for, for the weekend and then move on because next week the theme of the week will be COVID or education reform or levelling up. This is, this is not a kind of retail political moment. This is an epoch change where we, getting this right over the next 20 years is what matters, not getting it right in the next 20 hours. What is Ukraine asking for? What are they calling you for at the moment? Well, I mean, sanctions, surely. I mean, uh, yeah, look, we're I, speaking ahead of what Boris Johnson uh, says uh, in the House uh, of Commons uh, and to the nation. Obviously, so, um, sanctions need to really bite. I wasn't involved in the kind of multilateral discussions that led to the sanction package that was announced the other day. It's clear that within the international community, there is still quite a lot of disagreement over what should and shouldn't be in the sanctions package. And that is hard. Maybe today is the moment when all of those things melt away and the international community as one really kind of puts in place some sanctions that will bite. But Ukraine, that's not going to help the people of Ukraine in the immediate term. And the Prime Minister has announced that we will send more lethal aid. We're looking at exactly what that could be and how we would get it in there because that's a lot more complicated this morning than it was two days ago. And we will do everything that we reasonably can to help Ukraine. I know that the Telegraph has a loyal ex-military readership, and I suspect most people therefore will. You know, you'll have lots of readers that will instinctively get that this is a very fine line to walk, where you want to show leadership in the world, you want to be resolute in your defence of sovereignty. You know, this is a, if this is an, impo- an epoch change, to what? Is that do we, are we entering into a landscape where sovereignty of nation states is no longer sacrosanct, where the opprobrium of the UN no longer matters? Are we reaching a point where Putin can help himself or, th- or try to help himself to other countries? Uh, you know, and, and what does it say to Xi and his ambitions for Taiwan? Which is an old, different issue, and, there's all, and Trump has suggested there may be issues there after the Paralympics are finished in China, but let's not even go there today. I, I, so I really don't think it's anywhere near as imminent as, no, as Trump, Trump threatens. You can't, you've seen over the last couple of weeks that there are hard military physics to all of this. You have to build he, up a lot of troops. Russia, Russia couldn't invade Ukraine until he had nearly 200,000 people on the borders, all the combat aircraft, all the key enablers. Yeah. Right now, you're not seeing those amass on the coast of China. Yeah. So Trump, I think, is getting a bit carried away. Perhaps, a, perhaps the best opportunity here is if, if Russians start thinking their leader is mad, has lost the plot. Do you think Putin is mad? I don't mean he's mad in a silly way. I mean someone who's lost, lost touch with what ordinary Russians want to happen. Well, was he ever in touch with what ordinary Russians wanted to happen? I, I think the guy is surrounded by a kleptocracy and I think there is a culture of not speaking truth to power in Russia. I think that Putin is driven by a sort of czarist imperialism that is, um, that is, that is not, uh, that, that doesn't really... He's not worried about schools, hospitals, roads. He's worried about... A Restoring sort of, the USSR. Yeah, well, well, that or a sort of Russian empire. You know, some interesting debates with some academics because you know, I was sort of always sort of about you know, redoing the USSR. And they're like, no, because he's not a Soviet. It's, a sort of, it's an imperialism. It's a sort of... Czarist. It's, a, it's a belief in a kind of Russian empire and a sort of unity of Russian peoples whether they like it or not. So I don't, I mean, I, I put mad is a bit pejorative, but he, I don't think he has any regard for ordinary Russians. 
Before we were speaking, we spoke to Natalia Vasleva, the Telegraph's Moscow correspondent, who said that was it, they are in shock in Moscow today, she was saying. The state broadcaster are calling it a special operation, not an invasion. And there's talk of protests in Moscow uh, tonight, Thursday night at 7pm. Is that best chance that, that of isolating Putin to make him seem like this kind of despot and try and get pressure on him from within Russia to stop this activity in Ukraine? Yeah, he has to fail. He has to be seen to fail. You know, the PM has been really clear on that in all of our COBRA meetings and the meetings when we've been discussing options. And let's be clear, that is that is a failure that is brought about through the West in a unified way, pulling all levers of government, domestic and international, to impose cost on Russia over a generation. This is about an end to the kleptocracy because oligarchs universally find that they can no longer enjoy the trappings of their wealth internationally and actually it's pretty hard for them to make money within Russia. This is about Putin losing the consent of the Russian people because the Russian people realise that he is rolling the dice with hundreds of thousands of their young men and women and that many thousands of them are going to die. I think one of the most startling facts that I've pulled out in my research over the last few weeks is they lost six thousand people in Chechnya. Now put that in the context of Iraq and Afghanistan, where we lost 450 in Afghanistan, just under 200 in Iraq. And we counted that as an incredible price to have paid. It became a really unpopular war. 6,000 people were lost in Chechnya. Chechnya was unpopular with the Russian people as a consequence. That was in a country or a region of 1.4 million an insurgency in a population of 1.4 million cost the Russians 6,000. This is a country of 44 million people. If the Ukrainians fight, as I think they will, if they rally behind a resistance, as I think they will, Putin is costing the Russian nation tens of thousands of the lives of its bravest and best. And I think that the Russian people, when they start to see that happening, no matter how hard Putin tries to cover it up, I think that they will realise that he doesn't have the interests of Russia at heart, he just has his own interests. So any action we take is through NATO? Uh, maybe. Along with some, I mean, we, now, we know, the, the new sort of Brexit Britain outside of the EU, we are put, doing things we wouldn't do if we were part of the EU, aren't we, on the world stage? So we have, Johnson's had some credit, hasn't he, I think, for being, for being quite, for going further than the EU in some of his language, certainly. Well, yes, so I, I think the stuff you do through NATO, and actually the stuff that you do through NATO isn't, really about Ukraine. That's about drawing the line on the map around NATO countries in ever thicker red pen. That's Baltic states. Baltic states, Poland, Romania, uh, some of the Balkans. Putin has to know that Article 5 is sacrosanct. sacrosanct it is right. meant and that, so that's the, what you do with NATO, right? So we're strengthening those borders. Liz Truss said so, didn't you, this week? That's the plan, yeah. strengthen those borders properly. And, and look, you know, like uh, PM Kallas, the Estonian Prime Minister, has been on TV this morning. Big NATO flag behind her. She and many other countries around Europe right now will feel that they're about to get bullied out of their sovereignty. It's really important that NATO shows that we stand behind them, that Western Europe stands behind Eastern Europe, if that line is crossed. That's the NATO bit. Then the UK is a leader within the G7 and the G20. Those are the fora, I think, alongside the kind of OSCE and others, that where you get the sanctions bit right and the long-term diplomatic arc is set. 
And then I think that this is a good moment in the face of a belligerent authoritarianism of Putin and Xi. This is a good moment to double down on a rules-based international system with the UN at its heart. So the UK is a P5 country. Security Council 5. Yeah, should be using its seats to kind of... To, to say that this is that we still believe in something as a group of you know, liberal democracies, that the values that brought the UN together. To, you know, Trump had such a negative rhetoric about the UN, and, and actually I think this is a moment to sort of double down on why it's important. Do you worry about the US nervousness about Ukraine? There's talk today, isn't there, about how Americans don't really want the US to get too involved in this conflict. Well, I think I think you know there's been there's a history of US isolationism, you know, all the way back to kind of the French Revolution and all the, also the Napoleonic Wars, you know, whether America should come over and, and the two fight wars. against us, and the two world wars, and that is an inevitable bit of U.S. public opinion. But the fact is, is that U.S. leadership on the world stage is needed right now. And to my point about Europe, I think the re- what Europe has realised is the voice that's been missing in Brussels over the last four months has been that UK voice with all the access to the special relationship intelligence that we have. And maybe that's why some European countries have been less less certain about what may happen today, because there hasn't been that voice. And I think lots of Eastern European countries are quite keen, as I think you had in your newspaper the other week, that you know people are starting to discuss about how do you bring a UK voice back into a European security discussion. Um, so look, the UK has lots of levers. Our relationship with the US is as critical now as it's been at any other moment of crisis over the last couple of centuries we've got a job of work to do and you know this is you know the pm we just need to give him the space to not have to deal in retail yeah. politics and just did you draw a line between the 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 botched withdrawal from afghanistan biden being uh, president to this increasingly bellicose behavior by world world rivals russia and china is that unfair not really because i think that the arc was Afghanistan, the trajectory was set by what Trump did, you know, that, the Doha Agreement. So it was actually a very muscular, isolationist, America-first foreign policy that put us on the trajectory to what happened in Afghanistan. Interestingly, for the last 25 years, we have punished ourselves, last 20 years, we've punished ourselves for the intelligence failures that led to the Iraq War. And, and, and it's the, the default in kind of Westminster is not to trust intelligence. And then everybody kind of saying, well, Afghanistan was a further vindication. The, the intelligence in Afghanistan was relatively clear. There was an optimism bias amongst the generation the of speed people of the around the Yeah, there was, exactly. a, there was a genera- there was an optimism bias that nobody wanted Afghanistan to fail in London or Washington. And so people didn't read the intelligence in the way they should have done. To give the intelligence services their due, and it will be many, many years before you will get to see what I've seen over the last few weeks, it is terrifying how accurately they have been able to... Well, you've been warning on this in public, haven't you, for weeks now, but yeah. did you think it was going to happen? Because yeah. you seem quite... You're, you're emotional today, James, aren't yeah. you? Well, You uh, seem emotional to me because I don't think you... It does feel very real now, doesn't it? Well, it, it is real. I mean, I'm emotional because... Um, you know, I have lay on my stomach whilst rockets and mortars have been going off around me and it is the most terrifying experience you can imagine. You're utterly helpless. It's random. And there are, you know, I was a trained soldier. There are Ukrainian civilians who are this morning cowering in their basements or lying on the floor of their kitchen just hoping it's not going to be them. It's the most 
terrifyingly horrendous thing and people are going to this, this is war it's not like, this isn't just TV pictures um, and you know I, I'm, I'm just so that's why I you know, the gravity of what's going on is extraordinary and it's not happening in some dusty and dangerous place in the Middle East it's not happening in sub-Saharan Africa it's happening in a European country that's about a two and a half hour flight from London it's happening to you know there are tens of thousands hundreds of thousands of Ukrainians settled in the UK um, it's happening to their families um, so yeah there's, there's a bit of this, this, is, this is grave it's not it's not just TV pictures did you worry that Putin might use nuclear weapons no not well tactical nuclear weapons maybe but not not sort of strategic stuff um, I mean tactically that's the nuclear weapons yeah, well, uh, y- y- yes, yeah. I mean, I don't. It's invidious to make a distinction of the sort of the horrible world of the of the MOD. But um, so he has. You know, there are wet, there are missile systems deployed in Belarus, as I warned in a media round the other week, that are capable of delivering tactical nuclear payloads. So battlefield nuclear weapons, not the sort of ICBM stuff yeah, that threatens yeah. Paris, London, yeah. Washington. Um, the I and I don't know whether he would use those. I think that Russia has a doctrine of a violent overmatch. So the more resistance it meets, it just goes for big, big violence uh, to overwhelm. So we'll see. But I, I, I think that you know, it gets back to the first set of answers that I gave you in our discussion. That we just have to be really clear that this is not the time for Niger. I've seen people on TV this morning, you know, politicians from our side of the house on TV this morning, talking in the most bellicose way. This is not the time to be saying, by 3pm, Prime Minister, you must be stood at the dispatch box ready to discuss the deployment of the fleet and the air force. Like, whoa, 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 whoa. You know, this is the time for cool, calm, considered decision-making around how to impose cost over decades not some sort of retail, you know, what are the answers right now? You haven't got them, gotcha. Well, sod off, come on. You know, did we, that's not the way we behaved in any other time of major international crisis. And let's be clear that get this wrong, it becomes existential in a way that would have been unimaginable just six months ago. Well, James Heapy, thank you for joining us on a really difficult morning for, for all of you guys at MOD. Um, thank you for joining this week on Chopper's Politics. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you. Now, coming up, I'll be talking to a Tory MP who's been warning for years about the risks of turning a blind eye to Vladimir Putin. Right after this. Was Churchill the hero of the Second World War or a racist imperialist whose actions led to the Bengal famine? Should his statue be protected or pulled down? And can we really judge the figures of the past with the attitudes of the present? Please do apply any permission to have the statue removed. My name is Stephen Edgington, and if you're enjoying this podcast, you might like History Defended, a new series from The Telegraph. In each episode, a leading historian defends a controversial historical figure. I play devil's advocate. There are some times in wartime when incredibly difficult decisions of life and death have to be taken. Winston Churchill, Clive of India, Bomber Harris and Oliver Cromwell. Men whose actions still influence the world we live in today. Today is victory in Europe day. Search History Defended in the same place you're listening to this.
Now, looking out the window here at the Red Lion pub, I can see people going about their business in Whitehall. But some MPs have been warning about the risks of ignoring the increasingly bellicose statements coming out of Vladimir Putin's Russia. One of those MPs is Bob Seeley, the Tory MP for the Isle of Wight. Bob, welcome to Job of Politics. Good morning, Chris. Very nice to see you. And, and hello to your, was it podcasters? Is it yeah, well, listeners? yeah. No, what, we what haven't are, got a name for the army of listeners. Podcastees. What should you call them? Podders. Giles, any thoughts? Chopper's Podders. Chopper's Podders. I'm going to give you your special mug, which means you've been on the programme. Oh, thank you so much. Um, what a morning. A difficult morning. It's pouring with rain outside on Whitehall as I look at it, and it feels grim in the world of politics. Uh, yes, it does. We have the first offensive war, because, I mean, let's face it, that's what it is. We have the first offensive war in Europe since 1945. Yeah. I mean, it's unbelievable. You've been, um, I, call, I see you as a kind of John the Baptist figure who's been warning on this for so many years now. And your warning has mainly been about controlling Russian influence in the UK. It's gone beyond that now. Boris Johnson is announcing more sanctions today, Thursday. We don't know what they are. Were you depressed by what he announced on Tuesday? Was that enough? No. I mean, look, the, where you can fault Western governments over the last 10, 15 years is that they've simply refused to deal with the world as it was becoming. The world's become a much more dangerous place. Putin effectively tore up the post-Cold War settlement in 2007. And for those By doing who, what? Well, he went to the Munich conference and said, I don't buy this unipolar world anymore. Then Georgia followed, then Ukraine followed. We've known that his intention has been for a long time to destroy or control Ukraine to shatter Western unity, to build a new sphere of influence in the, in the former Soviet Union, and to present the West as a decadent, mortal enemy of the Russian people and, and Russian identity. Uh, and it is an agenda which is feverish, it's an agenda which is dangerous, but it is not an agenda which has been a secret for those people who have been following events in Russia. And what saddens me is that deterrence has failed. And if deterrence has failed, we need to go back to the drawing board. What happens now? I mean, we can't prejudge what the PM might have decided at the COBRA meeting this morning, but what do you want to see? Do you want to see some degree of sanctions on bank transfers? Anything that we say now, Chris, is too little too late, because in the last five or six years, two events have happened. And again, look, Putin is both very highly irrational. He is fired by an embittered hatred, and his cultural background as being part of the KGB, which sees itself as the carrier of and the protector of Russian identity. It's both highly emotional, but also highly rational. And he's been thinking through these options for years. And in the past few years, two things have happened. He's built up vast dollar reserves. And secondly, the West, through clearly the Russian encouragement, but it didn't need much encouraging, has begun significantly more dependent on Russian gas. Not us specifically in the UK, but that's not the issue. The issue is Germany and many countries in Europe are significantly dependent We're on Russian We're around 3%, gas. aren't we? We're very, very low. Yeah, but Germany's 60% now. Mm. And when people say, oh, they've cut Nord Stream 2, I'm sorry, Nord Stream 2 is painless cut. They get all their gas any way through the current pipeline. Yes, Nord Stream 2 had only one objective which was to shut out Ukraine to make Ukraine easier to destroy. So have we gone beyond banning Russia today, which is what the PM said might be a good idea to yesterday? I wouldn't ban it. What's the point? Because then the the Russians will shut down the BBC and they'll say you're trying to shut down freedom of speech. Look, it's it's effectively a, a Putin combatant. Fair enough. So what's next then? I mean, Ukraine is not a NATO country. We are sending armaments kit to Ukraine. We're not not allowing UK troops to go with that kit. 
Do, is it time to put British troops into Ukraine? No, uh, and the, the desperate tactical actions will make the situation worse. And again, it is a particularly unpleasant facet of Russian diplomacy, but they do regularly threaten the world with nuclear weapons. I mean, they did it to the Danes in 2016. Putin has said it this morning. He certainly implied it with the, the vast new weaponry that they have, and they've been boasting about these new hypersonic missiles for months. So... I think we are in a very, very dangerous territory. There's a debate today on Russia and China that I'm leading. And in the House of Commons? Yeah. But the point is now that, that we need to understand the new world in which we're living and take long-term deterrence. Desperate tactical measures, people saying ban this, ban that, it's not going to amount to a hill of beans unless it's thought through. And what we now need to do is to protect... What would you do? Because all MPs can vote for Prime Minister. What would you do if you numbered I'd, I'd start at home and I'd clean up the city. As an emergency, I would bring in the um, economic crimes bills and all the stuff. And what that, that would do what? Well, sure. um, make transparent shell companies, enforce basic standards, much, much higher standards in companies' house. I'd bring in a foreign lobbying law. I would prevent the abuse of libel and data protection laws. I'd bring in laws to prevent so-called slap legislation when you do a lawsuit or bring in a lawsuit designed to intimidate harass. So I would protect our standards much more in relation to China. We'd be having a much tighter regime about what universities can do with China. We're not on China yet. And, no, and that's, all, right. that's all civilian measures. I wonder what, how you deal with the immediate threat today to Ukraine, or do we watch it happen? Well, if we can continue to sell them weapons, we should do so. But again, look, the frustration is... This is Ukraine. Yeah, um, mm. the frustration is, what do you really need in modern warfare? You need anti-air kit. And for years, the Ukrainians were asking for anti-air. And after, shame, after Crimea. Yeah, well, shamefully, in 2015, the British government, the coalition government said, we're not going to sell the Ukrainians the stuff that they want because we don't want to offend the, the Russians. This is after Putin had already declared war. We said, we're not going to sell you the means to defend yourself. And how can we therefore be surprised? The chopper, there is no single fix now because the point is you get it right before the invasion. Yep. Well, we are where we are. Did you think know, that sorry. having Joe Biden in the White House has made the situation worse? Do you think that the fact that there's the botched withdrawal of Afghanistan last August has led to this increasingly bellicose behaviour by Russia? It's an argument, and I don't have... I'm, I'm divided about it. I don't know is a simple answer. It might have done. The idea that... Trump, a, a man said to be compromised yes. uh, allegedly by blackmail or, you know, by compromising information. The Russians may have all these fevered rumors and questions he's been asked. I don't necessarily know that that would have made a difference. He would have maybe held back. Uh, you never know. Let's see how this plays out. I mean, the one, okay, the one tool that the West has now apart from continuing to supply the weapons, which may get shot down when they arrive in Ukraine, may get destroyed on the ground. And the problem, again, I'm sorry to come up with problems, not solutions. The problem is if you give somebody a weapon the day before they need to use it, mm. you need to give armies time to learn yeah, how to use kit, build it into their tactics, what people call standard operation procedures. So, so what is next? Liz Truss talked yesterday about bolstering the Baltic states. Yeah. That almost, that's almost like surrendering Ukraine, you see. The next step for the Russians is going to be to have a sphere of influence where they push the West out of. So there are another three or four potential battlegrounds. They will harass and threaten with war Western ships that go into the Black Sea. So they will want to make the top half, if not almost all of the Black Sea, a Russian lake. And from there, they will intimidate Bulgaria and Romania, which they want to move away from their Western alliance. The they EU, will, of course, you're yeah, not Romania. Absolutely. But they have their supporters in the EU. 
You know, their their money through Cyprus buys influence, their loans to the French National Front buys influence, their alliance with Hungary buys influence, their work with a lot of parties on the fringe right and fringe left buy influence. This is all part of Russia's hybrid war. Another problem, we still don't understand this hybrid war, otherwise we would have shut down Russian oligarchs in this country long ago. The front line in Ukraine is on the border, which they're currently crossing. Mm. The front line in Germany is on the gas pipelines. The front line in Britain flows yeah. through the city of London. So there's the Baltic states as well, and, and that, is, that is the ultimate stage. The, you could see an invasion of those countries too. Well, Putin wants everything back in the former Soviet Union. Let's be under no illusion. The question is, is he willing to call NATO's bluff? Do you buy into this madman philosophy, this idea that's being pushed by Boris Johnson, actually, that the guy, that Putin, is a bit okay. crazy and, he, and he's not carrying the people with him in Russia? Well, I hope not, because he's got a lot of nuclear weapons. And I think he's a very, very, very angry man. So I hope he's sane, because I hope he's sane for all our sakes. My huge frustration with the British government is that we in the West, but specifically in this country, our people should have been kept better informed about the way the world was turning and not for good. It doesn't mean necessarily we had to do something in 2008 when the Labour Party was in power or when the coalition mm. was in power, but since 2014, we should have been under no illusion. And we've gone from complacency to panic to complacency to panic, and now we're back in panic. And actually, that is a bad, a bad space to be designing and making policy when you're panicking. What do you blame, an optimism bias in politics? Um, if there's a conspiracy, it starts straight at the top, and it was the fact is that we didn't want anything to damage the city, and so we had a no questions asked Would policy. You, with your party, do you worry about this idea, this idea of Russian money? Yeah, for sure. Did you worry about the, the fact that your party accepts money from people who with links um, to, to Russia? Uh, slightly, but can we just not do the whole Russia thing? I know, but I, mean, you know, good, I, I, no, I don't really buy into that either, but I'm asking the yeah, question because Labour do all yeah, the time. Let me answer it. Most Russians are not dodgy. Uh, most Russians, That's I think, right. here make a you know, massive contribution, and yep. as someone who's lived in the former Soviet Union for four years, I mean, I'm very fond of mm. Ukrainians, Russians, Belarusians. I think they're one, and Georgians and all these wonderful people. Uh, and it pains me. Um, but look, it's not just us. It goes outside of the Tory party into other areas too, is your point. And this is, the, and this is the problem, that if you allow this money and it builds up influence, it pays, it pays for influence. And, but where are we in terms of how long will this last for? We're on, we're on 5 a.m. this morning. We see tanks rolling into... Ukraine. Is this going to be a short thing? No. Is it going to be months and months? No, it'll be years. It'll be years. Um, years as, a, as a, a, a war in Ukraine will be years. We, uh, Do you, is that what you mean? No, I mean conflict with the West. We right. are, we are midway. So how long will Ukraine last then? I don't know, because it depends. Either there will be a clean victory and Putin will impose it. Well, let's talk through this. Clean victory, Putin imposes a puppet government. A lot of people in Ukraine will attempt to overthrow it. You'll have mass protests, you'll have mass demonstrations, you'll have shooting and violence on the street. You'll have the Maidan-style protests that happened in 2013, but on a much bigger scale. Western Ukrainian towns will in particular kick off. Secondly, that Russia doesn't get the victory at once, that it becomes very drawn out, that it seizes another county oblast they're called another county or two maybe seizes more of the black coast so effectively you get a static slow moving war thirdly that the russian operation fails and then putin does something drastic like put down a tactical nuclear weapon we have to understand that in russian military doctrine the use of nuclear weapons is not an Armageddon scenario. In some senses, they can be intellectualized in Russian military doctrine as a de-escalatory measure. So if you're looking at something dramatic, that this fails and he puts down a tactical nuke on the, on the training ground that Westerners were using in Western Ukraine to train forces, that's one scenario. You know, another scenario is you've got a series of sea invasions onto Odessa, onto Kherson, 
a strike to Dnipro in the southeast as well. So it's impossible to say. But when you're dealing with large-scale conventional weaponry and a population which is not going to behave like Afghanistan or Chechnya because you don't have the mountains in which to hide, but you have the cities in which to go into. I mean, there are so many scenarios. But let me ask you a question. When we see the pictures of dead women and children because of the inaccuracy a lot of the weapons used what do you think is going to happen in the West? There's going to be a significant hardening. And effectively, the most likely scenario is that we are, for the next few years, going to close ourselves off pretty much to the Russian state and effectively go back to where we were in the Cold War. It's a return of the Cold War. Well, the, but this is the problem. And people, I know people get very iffy about, oh, it's not a Cold War. Cold Wars are proxy wars. And we are in a, in a very intense proxy war, Cold War, with the Russians. And frankly, Putin declared that new Cold War in 2007. But nobody was interested in what that meant. And sadly, we are now finding out what that means. And it's going to change our world. And it's changing it badly. I'm afraid, very badly. Well, Bob Seeley, Tory MP of the Isle of Wight, and a constant person who's warned about Russia over the past few years. Thanks for joining us today on Chopper's Politics. Thank you. Thank you so much, Andy, Chris, and thank you for, for your podcastees for listening. Well, that's your lot for this week, listeners. On a morning in Westminster, when it feels like we're waking up to a new era in Western Russian politics, and the guests I've had on this morning certainly appear to be in a degree of shock about the change that has happened overnight. You can hear more from me if that 40 minutes wasn't enough in my daily emailed politics newsletter. It's called Chopper's Politics. It brings you all the latest gossip and news from the corridors of power from my laptop straight into your inbox every weekday. The link to sign up to that email is in the show notes of this episode. And be sure to check out my weekly Peterborough Diary column online from 7pm on Fridays and in Saturday's newspaper. Thanks again to my guests, our very own Natalia Vasilyeva, James Heapy MP, the Armed Forces Minister, and Bob Seeley, the Tory MP for the Isle of Wight. Thank you to my producers, Giles Gear, Louisa Wells, and Theodora Leludis. But most importantly of all, thank you to you for listening. Without that, we couldn't do the podcast, so please keep on. And of course, please do buy a copy of the Daily Telegraph if you can. You won't regret it. Until next time, though, cheerio. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.